want to talk to us on the subject today of friendship, something that all of us recognize as an incredibly important part of life. God creates us to live in community with one another, to live in relationships. Relationships is, are the very stuff of life, the very fabric of life. Life can be awfully lonely, even when you're surrounded by large numbers of people. Sociologists tell us that ministers of the gospel are sometimes the loneliest people on the planet, even though they're surrounded oftentimes by the largest numbers of people. We all understand how desperately important friendship actually is, and most everyone in here today can identify those kinds of things that make for close personal friendship. Experts tell us that at any given one time, you're only gonna have somewhere between two and five really intimate friends. Somewhere between two and five at any given one time. And beyond that, probably no more than 15 others that you live in close associations with. Uh, and this is why sometimes it's a misnomer for people to say, well, you know what? I don't really like large churches. I wanna be a part of a small church because I wanna to go to a church where I can know and live in relationship with everybody. It's never gonna happen. It's not gonna happen in a church running 150. You've only got time for relationships of no more than with 20 people. And most people are only gonna walk in relational circles with friends that number no more than 15 to 20 people at any one time, regardless of whether the church runs 200, 2,000, or 20,000. But what is it that makes for a good friend? Well, you know how to answer that question. I mean, sacrifice, caring, concern, the ministry of presence. Friends are there with you in the good times and in the bad. They don't bail out on you even when you've messed up deeply. But let me ask you this question this morning. Are you a friend of God? Did you know that friendship comes into play in terms of your own personal relationship with God? Now, there is no question that if you've been saved through a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, God is your friend. Salvation is what we call justification or reconciliation. And salvation is the very action through the ministry and work of Jesus Christ where enemies of God become his friends. That's what salvation does. Salvation brings forgiveness and moves you from a position of hostility with a holy God to a position of eternal acceptance in the very presence of a holy God. In salvation, enemies become friends. So there's no question that God is your friend. I remember the old song we used to sing when I was a boy. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And then wonderfully assuring to know God is a friend of mine. But the question on the table today is, are you living as a friend of God? Because even though we can be in a born again relationship with Christ, and even though Christ will be unequivocally and forever in eternity, our friend, Sometimes we as his people don't always live as if we are ourselves friends of God. This is what James is getting at this morning. In fact, before we read our text, I'm reminded of the great statement that James has already made to us about Abraham back in chapter 2. Do you remember what it said? 
Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness and he was called what? A friend of God. That's what I wanted to be said of me. That man walking down the street right there, there goes a friend of God. How do you know and how can you tell? That's what James is going to teach us this morning in this incredibly power-packed and highly charged passage of Scripture that we're going to read right now. Those of you that are able, would you stand with me today as we honor the reading of God's Word? Beginning in verse number 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, <clears throat> and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Father, as we come into your presence this morning, we're very grateful, first of all, to be here. <clears throat> we thank you for the privilege of worship, for the privilege of singing, for the privilege of praising, for the privilege, Father, now of entering into a time together in your holy and Aaron inspired authoritative word. We want to know it so that we can obey it. And I pray that your spirit would teach us deep truths today that not only informs our minds, but transforms our very lives so that we can indeed live in a way that there is no question we are friends of God. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you. Hillcrest, you may be seated. I've said throughout this series, James is hard. James is challenging. People identify James as among their favorite books, but you need to understand James will challenge your life because James tells you what to do. And that's why a lot of people like it. Just tell me what to do, right? And James does that. And no more so than in the passage that we just read. Did you notice how many commands are in that little paragraph? If you didn't notice it, I'm going to tell you, 11. There are 11 what we call imperative verbs in this little paragraph that we just read. And every one of them help us to better identify how we can know that we're living as a friend of God. Now I'm gonna take those 11 imperative verbs and I'm gonna reduce them down to seven general identifying markers. I don't know that I've ever preached a seven point sermon in my life, but we're gonna do it today, which means I have to talk really fast. That's how much is in this little paragraph that we just read. So let's see if we can come to an understanding of what it means to live as a friend of God by looking at these seven identifying markers that come from 11 different commands that James gives to the transformed people of the living God. First of all, you'll notice that a friend of God is one who lives fully surrendered to God. 
And that's kind of a summary statement that identifies everything that James is really teaching in this paragraph from chapter four. Remember, James was very clear earlier in this chapter, James four and verse four, which is the central verse of all of the letter of James, he was very clear there that friendship with the world makes one a what? An enemy of God, that's right. He said you can't live as a friend of the world and be a friend of God at the same time. In fact, friendship with the world, James says, is enmity with God. And that leads to the therefore here of verse number seven. Therefore, he says, submit yourselves to God. Now, it's that word submit you've got a problem with. Isn't that right? Nobody that I know likes that English word submit. It causes more struggle to more people than just about any other word in the Bible. And yet it's in the Bible all over the place. Uh, and the reason that so few, frankly, are living as a friend of God is because so few are actually fully submitted to God. You can't live as a friend of God unless you're fully submitted to God. And James makes clear that unless and until you come to the point of absolute, total, and full surrender, it's a bit of a farce to say, I am a friend of God. The word submit is a compound word. That means it's made up of two words scrunched together to form a unique word. It's taken from the realm of the military, which will make sense to a lot of people here. We live in a military community. It's a word that means to rank under. We get the idea of chain of authority or uh, uh, order of authority from it. It means to place oneself under the authority of another chain of command. And the principle of authority and submission is really taught all over the Bible. It applies to every dimension of life. Christians are to submit to the governing authorities. The Bible teaches that. Uh, employees are to submit to the authority of their employers. The Bible teaches that. Wives are to submit to their godly husbands. Yes, the Bible teaches that. Children are to submit to their parents. The Bible teaches that. And all of that because God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. Everything that God creates, he creates it to function in a reasonable, practical, orderly kind of way. You can see it in every dimension from the solar system that God has created to this very world order where the seasons come and the seasons go and the sun rises and the sun sets and the moon rises and it waxes and wanes. God creates everything with a degree of order and functionality. And that's true in the relational dynamics of life as well. In fact, no more is it more true than our relationship to God. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. And in every relational dynamic, somebody is called to lead and others are called to follow that God-given leadership. And that's true in terms of your relationship with God. It's impossible to be saved apart from a voluntary submission to the God who wants to save you. And those who would walk as friends of God are those who, watch it, stay submitted to God. And that means full and complete what? Obedience. This is where obedience is so very critical. Not just in certain parts of your life, and we're very bad about wanting to live compartmentalized. In other words, I'll give God this part of my life, and I'll give God that part of my life, and I'll submit here, and I'll submit there, but I'm gonna hold this part back. And I'm gonna keep this part back. 
Now that may be my marriage, it may be my relationship with another friend, it may be my relationship with my kids, whatever the case might be, I'll give all this stuff and I'll yield it to the leadership and lordship of God. But I'll hold this part back. You can't live as a friend of God and do that. Do you hear me say amen? Full and complete surrender to God is what makes for a friend of God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Watch it. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. A friend of God lives fully surrendered to God all the time. At the same time, and second, a friend of God resists the devil. It's one of the most recognized commands in the book of James, coming right on the heel of the command to submit to God. Did you notice the contrast? Submit to God, resist the devil. They're two sides of the same coin. You'll never be able, by the way, to successfully and consistently resist the devil unless and until you're living fully submitted to God. Somebody say amen this morning. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So friends of God are those who place themselves under the authority of God and then oppose or stand against the authority of the devil. Notice the contrast. With God, we're doing this. With the devil, we're doing this. And we're living that way consistently at the same time. Under the authority of God, opposing the authority of the devil. And to be sure, when you become a friend of God, you're going to become an enemy of the devil. The two happen simultaneously. And practically every day of your life, the great enemy, that sinister minister of opposition, is going to throw everything at his disposal to trip you up. He'll make it his mission as a roaring lion to devour your very life, to drive a wedge between you and your relationship with God. And what does God say? You've got to resist that with every part of your spirit. You have to resist those temptations, those schemings, those wiles, to use the King James language, of the devil. And what's great is that the command to resist comes with a promise. Resist the devil and he will... Oh, you can do better than that. Resist the devil and he will... Flee from you. That's right. That's the promise. And that's because the devil has no authority over a born-again believer. Did you hear me? The devil has no authority. The only thing the devil can do to a born-again believer is tempt him or her. But you don't have to succumb to the temptation. I hope you know that. This is where spiritual resistance comes into play. The devil will make it his mission and his strategy in your life to get you as a born-again believer to act independently and go your own way from God. That's all the devil can do to your life. He can entice you. He can appeal to you. He can tempt you. But the devil can't make you do anything. You have the power by the authority of the Spirit that dwells within you to resist the devil and what's the promise? If you resist the devil in and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he must what? Flee from you. That's because he has no authority over you. First John 4 and verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. In other words, the them is the spirits of this world. You have overcome them. For he who is in you is what? Greater than he who is in the world. But the promise is not automatic. You have to resist. 
And practically speaking, that requires a number of decisions on your part. It means, first of all, saturating your life with the truth of this book right here. You'll never be able to successfully resist the devil apart from a knowledge of God's Word. You have to know what God's will is. And to know God's will means knowing God's Word. You have to saturate yourself with the whole armor of God, as Paul calls it, which includes what he calls there in Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and the belt of truth. That's what Jesus did when he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil 40 days and 40 nights. The devil would tempt him. Jesus responded. And what did Jesus say? Devil, it is what? Written. Three temptations mentioned there. Three responses of Jesus. All of them having to do with something that was ingrained in Jesus coming directly from his knowledge of the word of God. And that's the way you resist the devil. He tempts you. You respond. It is written and he will flee from you. But it also means you engage constantly in the discipline of prayer. The word of God and the discipline of prayer. Paul says praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, Ephesians 6, 18. And I love that statement, praying at all times with all prayer. I mean, you're talking about layer upon layer. Paul says you gotta pray with prayer. That's right, because more people talk about prayer than actually pray. And so that's a great reminder. If you're going to resist the devil, you've got to saturate your life with the Word of God, and then you better be on your knees, because the devil is a roaring lion, and if you think you can outwit him and outwrestle him in your own power, you, my friend, have another thing coming. Bottom line, you resist the devil when you engage him with God's divine weapons, the whole armor of God, and not your own, and friends of God are quick to do it. Third, a friend of God lives in daily repentance. Daily repentance. Look at verse 8. Here's another command. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. In fact, there are two views, two perspectives that every believer ought to be very familiar with. You ought to have, first of all, the view of the face of God, and you ought to have a view of the backside of the devil. Those are the two principal views that every born-again believer ought to be very familiar with. The face of God and the hindquarters of the devil. Somebody say amen. As clean as I know how to say that in a church. Resist the devil and he will what? flee. You ought to see his backside all the time. And as you see his backside, you ought to have a very clear view of the glorious face of God. Resist the devil, draw near to God. This is strongly encouraged by the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, this concept of drawing near or coming near to God is very Old Testament language. It's priestly language out of the Old Testament because it was the Levites who were first given authority to draw near to God or to come near to God as representatives of the people. The priest represented the people before God, and so they were given that great privilege, but only after certain requirements had been met. 
And this coming near to God eventually, of course, was broadened <clears throat> to the whole people of God who were invited to come near to God. How? By returning to God. Do you remember the language of Malachi where God comes to a very wayward, backslidden people and says to them what? Return to me and I will what? Return to you, says the Lord. And that concept of returning to God, returning to the face of God is what we commonly call repentance. And that's what James has in mind here as he mentions this concept of drawing near to God. Drawing near to God for fellowship and drawing near to God for worship is two things. It's a privilege on the one hand, but it's also a great responsibility on the other. And it comes with certain requirements. You don't just willy-nilly walk into the presence of the holiness of God. You better be ready to meet a holy God. We have lost the concept of the holiness of God. If you come to a real full understanding of just how holy God is, it'll break you. And so you don't just waltz into the presence of God any more than you waltz into the Oval Office or waltz into Buckingham Palace. No, you, you better be prepared to meet the Lord. And that means repentance first and foremost. Second Chronicles 7, or yeah, Second Chronicles 7, 14, one of the most memorized verses in the Bible. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. This concept of turning from their wicked ways and returning to a holy God is exactly what's exemplified in the most a uh, popular story Jesus ever told, the parable of the prodigal son. Isn't that right? I mean, here you have this boy who squandered everything in riotous living, self, self, self-centered to the core. And yet he realized when he was up to his neck in mud with hogs, that he didn't have to stay there. I mean, it's his fault he was there, but he knew he still had a father and he knew he could still return. And he makes that decision. He returns to his father. And not only does he receive this incredibly affectionate welcome, the father runs to him. The father embraces him. The father kisses him all over his face. But he gets this lavish party where they kill the fatted calf at no extra charge. And this is a beautiful picture of how God responds to us, even in the midst of the deepest kind of sin, when we make a decision to get up out of the pigsty and return in repentance to the living God. Daily repentance is a mark that you're fully submitted to God and it helps define who a true friend of God actually is. Well, are you with me so far? Say amen. Fourth, a friend of God pursues personal holiness. A friend of God not only turns away from sin, but a friend of God actively pursues a life that's marked by holiness because God is holy. Here in verse eight, James issues two additional commands that help identify what's required for us to come near to God. He gives us this command to draw near to God. Well, what's required in order for me to do that? 
in worship and fellowship. Well, he says it in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I think James needs to learn how to be a little more direct with his people. Amen. I mean, that's not necessarily (laughs) the most winsome of language. I mean, just a few verses earlier, he's called them all adulterers. Now he's calling them sinners, double-minded. Well, why is he calling them that? Well, because they're trying to live as friends of the world and friends of God at the same time. And he knows that's a fool's errand. You can't possibly do that. That's what makes them double-minded. These are imperative verbs here, cleanse and purify. And they speak to matters of overt action that we have to take as children of God. These aren't going to be done automatically for you just because God is a gracious God. No, you got to wash your hands. And you have to be the one to make a decision to purify your heart. Again, that's language that's taken out of the Old Testament that's very priestly. Because those are the two primary things that a Levitical priest had to do in order to stand in the stead of the people of Israel and approach God in worship on their behalf. And in the same way, it was later broadened to include all of the people of God as reflected in the magnificent 24th Psalm, which is one of my favorite of all Psalms. The earth is the Lord in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. He's established it upon the seas and founded it upon the waters. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? In other words, who may approach God in worship? And then he answers the question. He who has clean hands and a what? And a pure heart. There it is right there. In other words, those given the privilege of drawing near to God have to draw near with holiness. Holiness. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's a sermon in and of itself, but Jerry Bridges in his monumental book, The Pursuit of Holiness, that's one of the 10 books that every Christian has to read alongside the Bible. I mean, the Bible is the only must read, but if I were to say outside of the Bible, as far as Christian books are concerned, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges is one of those books you've got to read. And here's what he says, to be holy is to be morally blameless. It is to be separated from sin and therefore consecrated to God. To live a holy life then is to live a life in conformity with the moral precepts of the Bible and in contrast to the sinful ways of the world. You draw a line in the sand. The world's going to live like this. I'm going to live like this. The world's going to look like the devil, but I'm going to look like God. That's what it means to live with holiness. A friend of God not only resists the devil, But a friend, are y'all listening? Say amen. A friend of God also resists sin. Resists sin. That's what it means to live in holiness. You stand in opposition to sin. 1 Peter 1.15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy says the Lord. A friend of God pursues personal holiness. But not only that, James also reminds us that a friend of God, watch this, grieves at even the prospect of sin. 
He, he makes it very clear that alongside this overt action of pursuing holy behavior must come this internal acknowledgement that sin is repugnant, not only to God, but it's repugnant to me. What James does here in verse number nine of James four is pile four commands on top of one another. He's emphasizing something critically important that's missing in much of the Western church. He says in verse nine, watch it, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and let your joy be turned to gloom. Do you see how he's moving from action to attitude here? From what you're to do with sin, resist it, to how you're to view and respond to even the prospect of sin. Now let me just say that James is not being sour and dour here because many people will read this and say, well, you know what, I thought the Christian life was a life of joy, but let me make a statement here this morning. That's true. I preached a whole message at the end of the year last year on the joy of Jesus. But can I make a statement this morning? Are you listening? Say amen. Joy is a byproduct of holiness. One of those things that I said in that sermon about three weeks ago had to do with things that sap you of your joy. And one of those things that saps a believer of joy is sin. You can't live in sin and have the joy of Jesus at the same time. And this is why this is so important because joy is a byproduct of holiness. And the problem is so many in the house of God fail to take sin seriously at all. And what we do you say, well, I do take sin. So, well, what we often do is categorize sin. We take the big stuff seriously. But then there's also things that we know to be sin that we kind of laugh at and chuckle at and wink at. Here's the question that I have on the table this morning. Does God wink at it? Does God chuckle at it? I mean, in the divine trinity, are they elbowing one another and grinning? When sin is committed, even if we might categorize it as the small stuff. Can I make another statement this morning? That small stuff is what put Jesus on the cross. That's what he died to forgive. And that kind of attitude will always frustrate a life of holiness. I mean, Frankly, there are times in our spiritual journey where it's just not appropriate to laugh. There are times instead we ought to grieve, we ought to mourn, and we, can I ask this? When was the last time you shed a tear because you were so aware of your sin it made you nauseous? When was the last time you symbolically clothed yourself in sackcloth and sat down in the dust and ashes like the Old Testament prophets did as they mourned over the sinfulness of a complacent, stiff-necked, backslidden Israel because of how offensive your sin is to a 
holy God. Let me just say this morning, living as a friend of God means learning to see sin, all sin, as God sees it, and learning to hate it as God hates it. It's like Paul who in Romans chapter 7 realizes his own sinful condition and he blurts out in ways that all of us can identify with. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, my Lord. He knew there was a remedy even in the face of sin, but the point is that Paul was aware of his sin and he despised it. And he got down in the dust and grieved over it when he became aware of it. You can't live in holiness until you first learn to grieve even the very prospect of sinning against a holy God. There is a sixth Mark that James gives here of a friend of God, and that is that a friend of God carefully uses his words, her words. James says in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Once again, James returns to the temptation and tragedies of the tongue. In this case, what he calls evil speech. And this is not going to be the last thing, uh, the last time James brings up the problem of the tongue in this letter. It's evidently a big problem in the early church, continues to be a big problem today. And when he references this evil, speaking evil, he's referring to this gossipy, slanderous, behind-the-scenes speech. This just mean-spirited. It takes the legs out from under another person without them knowing it. It seeks to harm the reputation of someone else. And let me just say, this is as unchristlike as it gets. And it underscores the point. You cannot misuse language. You cannot misuse words and live as a friend of God at the same time. And that's because slanderous gossip reveals the very absence of love. Man, when you're talking somebody down, it's going to be hard for you to convince me or anybody else that you love that person. You don't speak against somebody that you love. You don't speak evil against somebody that you're praying for. No, you, you pray for them and God will give you a spirit of love for that person that will serve as a governor over your tongue and over your mouth. A person that can't control their speech is a person that's out of fellowship with God. And this is why it's a problem. I mean, that kind of careless speech out of control is in large part what creates disharmony and division in the local church. And not only does it create disharmony and division in the local church, it creates major confusion in a lost community. Because they think that a church is supposed to live singing kumbaya, locked arm in arm together all the time. And when that's not what's happening, in fact, when the exact opposite is what's happening, it creates major confusion and it undermines the effectiveness of the gospel in a lost community. Look at Proverbs 6 and 16. So much we could say about this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him, and here they are. Haughty eyes, what's a one-word synonym for haughty eyes? Anybody know? Pride, that's right, pride. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, 
feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows what? Discord among brothers. Seven things that the Lord hates and three of the seven have to do with speech. And here's the thing. Are you, I, I don't know that y'all are still listening to me. Would you say amen? amen? If the Lord hates it, there's no way you can selflessly or selfishly and maliciously use words and live as a friend of God. And then finally, a friend of God lives with a grace-driven humility, which is a concept we mentioned last week. The passage that we're looking at today begins with the command, submit yourself to God. And the command of verse 10 serves as something of a bookend of that. He begins by saying, submit yourself to God. And then he concludes by saying, humble yourselves before the Lord. Which is just another way of saying submit to God. Because you can't submit to God without humility. Humble yourselves, verse 10, before the Lord, and he will what? He will exalt you. Now, James has already reminded us of that earlier in the chapter, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives what? Gives grace to the humble. And all of us know, listen, we've all known people inside, outside the church, uh, that to use President Woodrow Wilson's phrase, they knew how to strut setting down. Amen. We've all known people like that. But it ought not be so in the family of God. Nobody ought to be strutting at all, upright or down low. No, you can't do that and live as a friend of God because pride is a mark of friendship with the world, not a friendship with God. That's why God opposes the proud because proud people are friends of the world, not friends of the Lord. One of the most important of all Christian principles is this. In the kingdom of God, you have to go low in order to move high. You got to go low in order to move high. Jesus said the last will be first. And the first will be last. In the kingdom of God, you've got to go low in order to move up high. Three times, three distinct times in his teaching ministry, Jesus said this phrase, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be what? In the kingdom of Christ, you have to go low in order to move up high. And real leaders, real Christ followers know that. They voluntarily lower themselves and they let God do the elevating. Let God elevate you. The last thing in the world you ought to try to do is elevate yourself because that's a sign of pride and it's a sign of friendship with the world and conformity to the world. No, you just go low and you let God lift you high. Is that not exactly what our Lord Jesus did? King of kings, Lord of lords, who voluntarily turned his back on the splendor of heaven and condescended to be born in a cattle trough to peasant parents, raised a carpenter's son, didn't even have a place for much of his adult life even to lay his own head. He humbled himself to the very purpose of God, even to the death of the cross. And how did God respond? 
to that perfect obedience marked by humility and submission to the very will of the Father. I'll tell you how God responded. Three days later, he rolled the stone away. And 40 days later, the very Son of God ascended to the highest heaven and our Lord gave him a forever throne that one day he's gonna bring with him when he comes again and established it in a new world order, a new heaven and a new earth. See, that's what God does to those who humble themselves to his perfect plan and will and live in that kind of submissive obedience even when it involves difficulty and pain. Listen, Spirit, we often talk about spiritual victory. We want to live in victory. Live in victory. Victory in Jesus. That's right, in Jesus. Spiritual victory comes not by your own strength, not by your own effort, not by the ways of the world. Victory only comes to those who submit themselves to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, weep, mourn, and wail over the very prospect of sin, Learn by the power of the Spirit to control their words and use their words in ways that honor and glorify God and edify and encourage people. And then live solely by the grace of God in a confident humility that actively demonstrate greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Brothers and sisters, you live like that and there will be no question. People will be saying of you and me, there goes a friend of God. This is his eternal word and all God's people said, amen. amen.